In book seven of Plato's Republic, Socrates gives us one of the most famous allegories in the history of philosophy. It's called the allegory of the cave. This allegory is supposed to represent our nature with education and with a lack of education. Imagine people living their whole lives in a dark cave chained to a wall. In front of them is a cave wall. Behind the wall to which they are chained is a fire. And between the fire in the background and the wall to which they are chained, there are people walking behind that wall, holding up images. And the reflection of those images casts a shadow on the wall, the cave wall, in front of them. So you have the fire way in the back that's throwing light over the wall to which they're chained on the cave wall in front of them. And people are walking back and forth and they are cast, those, those images they're holding up in front of the fire are casting shadows in front of those who are sit there, sitting there chained, staring ahead at the wall in front of them. Because those people chained to the wall, looking right in front of them at the cave wall, have been there their whole lives, they have started to accept those shadows cast in front of them as reality, as the real thing, as all there is. It's all they've ever known. Now, imagine someone being able to break free from their chains and crawl out of that deep, dark cave to the entrance. They emerge from the cave and they see the sun up in the sky and they see everything else around them in light of the sun. This, Socrates says, is what education is all about. It's about recognizing the shadows on the wall are just that, shadows. The real world is up outside of the cave. Now for Plato, who's writing this dialogue, the real world is based in the non-material ideas, what he calls the forms, up above the material world, in the spiritual realm. That's where the real really is. Everything down here in the material world is just a shadow of the real thing. Now, the allegory continues. Imagine going back into the cave and trying to free others and bring them out into the light. Plato says that they would resist. The man coming back in from the outside would struggle to see until his eyes readjusted to the darkness after being out in the sunlight. And so as he's stumbling around back in the cave until his eyes adjust, the people in the cave say, something's wrong with him. He, it's dangerous out there. See, he clearly can't walk straight or see right. Why would we ever want to go follow him? When the man who escaped tries to explain that there's a much bigger world out there and they're only staring at shadows, 
Socrates says they would plot to kill him. The people in the cave would plot to kill him for threatening their whole existence, their whole notion of reality, suggesting that there's something more out there and that these, what they've been staring at their whole lives are not real. What Plato gives us here is an illustration of someone coming down into a cave and talking about the light of the sun and the darkness cannot comprehend it. Now suppose further in this allegory that those dwelling in the cave could have been drugged, kicking and screaming out of the cave into the light. Once there, once out in the sunlight, they would insist on going back into the cave, still thinking that the shadows that they were used to on the cave wall were more real than the world they witnessed in the light of the sun. Our gospel lesson from John 1 is about darkness and light. But rather than escaping from the darkness and climbing to the light through philosophy, as Plato would have us do, we see the opposite. The light shines directly into the darkness of the cave, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The situation is much worse for those who reject the light when the light pours down into every crack and corner of the cave. But, the situation, but for those who do receive the light, the situation is also much better, as we find in verse 12 of our gospel passage today. Because to them is given the right to be called the sons of God. So I'd like to consider three points. First, the fact that God has spoken. Second, the nature of God's speech. And then third, how God's speech divides. First, God has spoken. We worship a God who has revealed himself to us. We must understand that the only reason we can know anything about God at all is due to the fact that he has chosen to make himself known to us. Man never has and never could set out on a mission to discover God as if he were the object of a space mission. Apart from God revealing himself to us through creation and through his word, we would know nothing about him at all. God reveals himself to us in his speech. In Genesis 1 verse 3, we read the very first thing that God does is speak. very first thing God does in the Bible at all is speak. And God said, Genesis 1 3. God brought the world into existence through his divine speech. In John 1, which we just read, we read that in the beginning was the word, the logos, the speech. And that word was with God, and the word was God, and it was through the word that all things were made, that were made. And the word, furthermore, became flesh. Jesus Christ is the divine speech of God. In Hebrews 1, our epistle lesson, we read that in the past, God 
spoke many times and in many ways through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. God communicates through his creation as well. Acts 14, 17 says that God, quote, did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. The great Christian apologist Francis Schaeffer wrote a book entitled, He is There and He is Not Silent. To paraphrase Schaeffer in that work, uh, he says, If God exists and created man in his own image, it's not unlikely that he would communicate it, uh, with him in a way we could understand, through words. If God exists and God speaks and God has created man in his own image such that we speak and understand words, it stands to reason that God would communicate with us in a way we would understand, speaking to us, revealing himself to us through words. All of life comes down to this question. Has God spoken? If God has spoken, it is of the utmost importance that we listen. It was not a coincidence that the first move that Satan made in the garden in tempting Eve was to call into question God's speech. Now the serpent, Genesis 3.1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God said? Think about that. The first thing God does in Scripture is speak. And the first thing Satan says in Scripture is, Has God spoken? Either God has spoken or He hasn't. This is the fundamental question. There's no room for relativism here. Our culture has no problem speaking of God in a vague and general sense. We invoke God to bless and to curse. When we are desperate, we invoke God's mercy by praying to Him for deliverance. Our culture this time of year has no problem speaking of Baby Jesus in a manger as a vague symbol of hope for prosperity and blessing in the year ahead. We've no problem speaking of God in this way. But what if God spoke? This is much more controversial. If God spoke, then what he has to say is of ultimate importance. Many different people can imagine the God they would like in their prayers. But when God speaks, the range of opinions about who God is narrows. If God is silent, we can imagine him as we wish. But if God speaks, we must conform ourselves to what he says. This raises the second point. What has God spoken? What is the nature of God's speech? If God has spoken, what has he said? First, we must recognize that God is not silent. Second, we must understand that God speaks out of his nature. 
In other words, God's speech flows out of who he is. God is not arbitrary will. There are no wasted words that slip out. Words that can be disregarded or parsed or uh, sifted through. What's important and what's not. Can God say anything that he wants? Is he powerful enough to do that? Yes, indeed. God is all-powerful. But God always speaks and acts in accordance with his nature. As Thomas Aquinas says, God's divine law flows out of his divine reason, not his arbitrary will. God does not wake up in the morning and decide to spin the earth in the opposite direction just for something new. God's actions are in accord with his reason and his nature. Likewise, God's speech proceeds from his nature, from his character. When God speaks, he cannot lie and he cannot blaspheme, for example. It's, his, it's against his nature to do so. So what is God's nature? When God speaks, he speaks light. Because he is light. 1 John 1 says, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. When God speaks for the first time in Scripture, in Genesis 1-3, His first words are, Let there be light. In John 1, when the Word comes into the world to dwell among us, He's described as the true light which gives light to everyone. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. In John 9, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus, his human veil will slip just a little. And Peter, James, and John get a glimpse of that glorious light that Jesus exudes. In Hebrews 1.3, again, our gospel passage today, it says that Jesus Christ, the speech of God, is the exact image of God's nature. If God's nature is light, Jesus, as the imprint of God's nature, is also light. The Greek word, therefore, um, exact image is character. It's the word character that we get. A character. So if you think of like a, a printing press or a typewriter, you have characters, little metal letters, right? that when they get ink on them and they strike the page, they create the exact imprint, the exact image of the letter on the page. Jesus Christ is like the, the ink to the metal character, the exact image of God's character. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. When he speaks, he speaks light into darkness. And if we go to the end of the story, Revelation 21, in the New Jerusalem, Scripture tells us, that the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. From Genesis to Revelation, we find that God begins the story by breaking into the darkness and void, by opening his mouth and declaring, let there be light. 
And when all that, he had been made, all that he had made had been corrupted by sin, the very speech of God took on flesh and became man to dwell among us. Again, shining light into the darkness. And at the end of the story, God's glory lights the eternal city where there is no darkness and no night. Third, we must ask, what does the light do? If God has spoken and he speaks out of his own nature, shining light into the world in creation and in redemption, what does this light do? I want to consider a couple of characteristics of light that help us better understand the implications of what it means to say that Jesus, the word of the Father, is the light of the world. First, light divides. Light pierces darkness. Darkness doesn't cut through light. This is why a candle can be seen from a long distance away. A lighthouse can be seen from miles away in the darkness out on the ocean, even in the midst of a storm. Light pierces darkness. Second, light must have a source. Darkness does not have a source. It's merely the absence of light. Put something up in front of a light, you have darkness. Doesn't, you don't have something that shines darkness, right? Imagine driving on a country road on a dark night. The headlights on the car create a path of light through the darkness, and then the darkness again closes in behind them once they pass. To see the road ahead of you, you need a source of Light. Light must have a source. Space. Outer space is dark. And we would live in darkness all the time if the earth did not rotate to face the sun. It's the light, see, that needs an explanation, not the darkness. When it's dark and the light comes on, we might ask, who turned on the lights? We never asked, we never asked, who turned on the darkness? It's the light that requires an explanation. And in a fallen world, it should be expected that there will be darkness. What needs to be explained is why there should be any hope of light at all. Third, light demands a response. When it's dark, you can't see. It's the, the, the day's over. The days before electricity, when the sun went down, the day was over. There's Nothing you can do. When the power goes out, the evening is over. But return to me for a second to Plato's cave. What does the prisoner drug from Plato's cave, kicking and screaming, into the light of the sun do? So he, can, he has two choices. The prisoner drug into the light of the sun can either go out there and shut his eyes to it and say, I can't see anything, I can't see, it's not sunning, it's, it's, it's not shining out here, it's not light out here, I'm going back in the cave, there is no sun. He can muster his will to reject the light and go back into the cave and try to convince himself there is no sun. Or he can open his eyes, look around and say, I was wrong. This is the light, this is reality. This is what's real. The cave was only images. 
only shadows. What he cannot do is say, this is not a big deal. This is the same as what I've always known in the cave. Shrug, this is nothing. See, you walk differently once you've seen the light than you would living in darkness. So light demands a response. You can't see the light and just say, same old, same old. You either must suppress that light or you must receive it. When the light shines in the world, John says that the darkness did not comprehend it. Why? Because, we're told in John 3, their deeds were evil. And here we see a contrast between Plato's cave and John's gospel. See, for Plato, the escape from the cave into the light was an intellectual or a philosophical endeavor. Education was about bringing people to a greater knowledge of the forms, the ideas that transcend the material world. The inability to think and to grasp the higher ideas and to be bound uh, to the shadows of the material world is what kept people from wanting to come out of the cave, according to Plato. However, for John, the resistance to the light is not an intellectual or a philosophical problem. It's a moral problem. John 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, and this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Rather than struggle to make our way out of the cave into the light, the light of the world came down into the cave and acted as a spotlight, exposing every crack and every crevice in the cave, seeking to save those which were lost. The word of the Father exposed the shadows for what they were. He made himself known not only to the philosophers, but to the demon-possessed, the lepers, the sick, the lame, the poor, to the children. Remember what Socrates said about the one who tried to convince his fellow cave dwellers to ascend out of the cave? What they would do? To this guy who came down to the cave and kept telling him about the real light outside the cave, what would they do to him, Socrates says? They'd plot to kill him. And for bringing light down into the cave, Jesus was crucified. And this was not due to just some misunderstanding. This was not due to a lack of academic training or philosophical sophistication but rather because people loved their sin and hated when the light was shown on it. The story could end there. This could be a tragic tale 
of light coming into the world only to be rejected by hopeless sinners who loved evil. But John 1.12 tells us that for those who received him, who believed in his name, to them he gave the right to be called the sons of God. The implication here is that there are people who fit into this category. There are those who did not stay in darkness. But how is this possible? How can people who are accommodated to the dark, who cannot comprehend the light, who love their sin, come to embrace the light and believe in his name? Who are these people? Are they the philosophers? Are they the mystics? Are they the ascetics? Those who deprive themselves of everything and live by themselves in the desert to draw closer to God? Are they the holy men with the strongest willpower to choose the good? Verse 13 says that they are those who are born. Those who are born of God. It is not through blood or the will of flesh or the, of the will of man, but by being born of God. John 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be born again. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, one cannot enter the kingdom of God. God not only sends his light into the world, but he also enables you to receive the light. It's through the gift of faith that we're able to receive the light at all. It's by freeing our wills that are bound by darkness that we are able to embrace the light. This Christmas, receive your King. The light of Christ still shines in the darkness today. Repent of your sins. Believe in His name. For those who believe, to them He gives the right to be called the sons of God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that in many times and in many places you spoke to your people, but that in these last days you have spoken through your Son. We thank you for creating a world of light, a world that is good. And then when we failed to give you the honor to your name and worshipped the creature rather than the creator and turned all to darkness, you shone your light into the world again. And Lord, even in a even at times like today when it feels we live in a dark world, your light still shines. 
Lord, we thank you that we did not have to become the powerful and the wise of this world, the great philosophers, the great intellects, the great holy people, but that of your grace and your mercy alone, you reach down to us to rebirth us, to give us life again. And so, Lord, we ask that you would humble us, that you would soften our hearts, that we would receive this light and that we would walk in this light. Even this Christmas uh, in the season, which give us the story. Help us to embrace that story as our own, to make ourselves part of that story, not to sentimentalize it, but to embrace it as our own. And Lord, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our reflective hymn is number 35 in your hymnal. God rest ye, merry gentlemen.